We are in a series right now, um, and it's Jesus Is. And we are then filling in the blanks week after week after week. And this week, my talk, I, the title that I gave it is Jesus Is a Friend of Sinners. A friend of Sinners. And when I say sinners, I'm talking about you. I am talking about me. So often when we think of sinners or we see that phrase, we, 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 we think of somebody that is so darn evil. Somebody said that it's, that it's so bad that we say to ourselves, you know, if that, you know, if Jesus can reach that person, he can reach anybody. Or, or somebody that is so messed up, so dysfunctional, so screwed up in the way they do life. We say, you know, if, if, if Jesus can help that person, then, then he can help anyone. And I'm sure that you've got somebody in your life that you may have thought about them in, in, in that light. But the truth is that's an incredibly arrogant statement. It suggests that somehow my own depravity cost Jesus less. It suggests that somehow my own brokenness requires less of his presence to restore and to heal and redeem. Judah Smith, Judah Smith uh, uh, wrote this about Christians. He said, Christians are incredibly or can be incredibly self-righteous. He said, we happily hold up evildoers as marvels of depravity, as examples of just how bad people can get. Then we finish our latte and engage in, in society. And it's funny because that's kind of pathetic, but that is the way we are often perceived. And the problem with the, if God can save the, the world or if the, God can save that person, it implies that there's a rating system. It implies that there is the scale of badness as you consider others and a rating system of goodness that you consider yourself. And it's a simple rating system. It's a cultural rating system. It's, it's an unspoken rating system. And it says that there are some in the room who have little sins, small sins. There are others in the room who have, you know, are kind of medium sins. Then there are those who have large sins. And then there are those who have supersized sins. And if you've been around church for any amount of time, you know this is true. And if you bump into somebody that's got small or medium sins in their life, you don't even bat an eye. Because you know that Jesus can easily finish the work that he began with just little or medium sins. But then you meet somebody who's got some supersized sins. And you think this is much harder for God. You think God has got to really dig deep to, to, to restore and to redeem and to reveal himself and to change that person. You think that this is harder for God. You think that God's got to really, man, the wheels are really coming off the wagon in this person's life before God can reach them. But nowhere in the Bible does, do, we, do we see that God distinguishes sins on different levels. He does not share our rating system. To God, sin is equally evil. All sin is equally evil, and all sinners 
are equally loved. Whether you believe in Jesus or you don't, you are equally loved by the Father. He doesn't decide. If you choose him, then that's his cue. He's going to love you. He loved you before you ever decide what to do with him. So there's no rating system. Obviously, there are consequences to some sin. I mean, some sin will get you a speeding ticket, and other sin will get you thrown into prison. But God says sin is just sin. And Jesus, he, he didn't have a rating system of sin either. He would, he would eat with just about anybody. He'd love just about anybody. He embraced just about anybody. And because he didn't have a rating system, the people of the first century, especially the Jews, had no idea what to do with him. In fact, because he has no rating system, we in the 21st century have no idea what to do with Jesus. You see, he doesn't make sense to our social structure. And for some reason, Jesus, he's always drawn to the worst kind of people. He's always drawn to the wrong people. And, then, and then that was really good news when you were the wrong person, right? It was really good news when you were a disaster. That was really good news when, when you were in the wrong crowd. But then you clean up a little bit. And just like they did in the first century, we complained that Jesus is still hanging out with all the wrong people, all the sinners. Now, have you noticed something about yourself? Have you noticed how in your worst moments, you are the most unattractive? All right. Have you noticed how when you are angry or you are jealous, have you noticed how when you are impatient, you are nasty? In your worst moments, you are the most repelling. Did you know that? There are times I, for the life of me, cannot figure out why my, why my, my wife married me. Because when I think about me in my worst moments, oh my Lord, it's awful. And yet, you know what's crazy? Is Jesus is actually attracted to you and drawn to you in your worst moments. He said in Luke 5, he said, it's not the healthy person that needs a doctor, it's the sick person. Then he said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. And he knew that he was speaking way over everybody's head when he said these things. And so then he says, go and learn the meaning of this. Because it doesn't mean what you think it means. You see, in the conversation Jesus was having with Matthew here, Jesus lumps the entire human race into two groups. That's it, two groups. People who think they are righteous and people who know they are sinners. That's it. Those are the only two kinds of people in the world. Those who think they are righteous and those who know that they are sinners. Those who pretend they don't need a savior and those who acknowledge that they're desperate for a savior to forgive them, to redeem them, to restore them. I want to go to Luke 19. And there's a really quirky little character in Luke 19, and his name is Zacchaeus, okay? And I'm going to read a couple verses, talk about him a little bit, read a few more. The Bible says in verse 1 that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, so that's important. 
Jericho wasn't really, it was just a detour, okay? He entered Jericho and he was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him. And since Jesus was coming that way, and when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. All right, he's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. That's what they thought of Zacchaeus. Well, the truth is Zacchaeus was a nasty guy. He found a way to steal money from people in broad daylight while he's looking them in the face. You see, in, in the first century, Israel was conquered by the Romans. It was a vassal nation. And that meant it, 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 was, it served Rome. But Rome allowed the nation of Israel to self-govern under Roman rule. And the Jewish people, even though they were allowed to kind of live somewhat normal lives, they hated the Rome. Rome they, they hated the Romans because they were subservient to the Romans and they had to pay taxes to the Romans. And in order to get taxes from the Jewish people, the Romans hired Zacchaeus. He's a Jewish person. He's a Jewish man. They hired a Jewish guy to go to his neighbors and to his relatives and to his city and get taxes that they required and bring them to Rome, all right? And so Rome wanted its quota of taxes, but it didn't really care how much Zacchaeus took for himself on route. They just needed their percentage. But apparently Zacchaeus took a lot on route because the Bible said, he was a very wealthy man. And he became wealthy by cheating his own people out of their money. And they despised him. So this is a little guy who is incredibly hated by his neighbors, by his community, by his city. Now, he's not just a tax collector. He's the chief tax collector. You know what that means? He's the mob boss. All right, this guy, he's, he has, he's responsible for an entire tax district, which means that every tax collector has to, has to, to just to keep their jobs, has to slide him a percentage. And so he's getting, getting a percentage of all of the take of all of the tax collectors, and it's making him exceedingly wealthy. But in the same way, it's making him infamous. It's making him legendary. It makes him a notorious sinner. In fact, he, he, he is considered to be a traitor to the nation of Israel by the rest of the Jews, by all of his friends and family. But think about this. Of all of the people Jesus could have spent a little bit of time with while he's on this detour through Jericho, of all the people, he chooses the guy that is so hated by his city that they ban him from the synagogue. A Jewish man banned from the synagogue is a man who is banned from forgiveness. A man who is banned from God. 
I think it's interesting. I think it's, it's, it's fascinating, actually, that in this narrative, the Bible is very clear on this matter that Zacchaeus was a short guy. He was a short guy. I mean, it's impressive to me that he made the book. I'd, I'd be happy to make the book. You know, I don't care. Put, just give me a little piece, a little story. I'd like that's that's good. That says something about him. But think about it. What part of your anatomy do you hate the most? What is it? What what is it? What is, when we, there's always something. We've all got something. We go oh. You know, I, I, I have my, my mother's ears, or I have my father's nose, or, or you, you know, I just hate my elbows. And, um, and, but there's something, there's a part of you that you despise. Think about what part that is. And now think about Zacchaeus, because he has gone down in history known for the thing that he hates the most about himself. He will die, and 2,000 years later, little children will sit in Sunday school and sing about Zacchaeus was a very little man, a very little man was he. What is that? What is that? What is, like, that's cruel. Don't you think that's cruel? Very little man. He's up in heaven going again, again with the little. Well, let it go, let it go. And I don't think kids in the first century are a lot different than kids in the 21st century. You know what it was like. They find one thing different about you. One thing. And they just pick. And they pick. And they pick. And they pick at it. And they poke at it. And they tease you. And they make rhymes. And you get fleas if you touch that person because of that thing that's on them. And you step on a crack in the sidewalk. And then you have Ed fleas. And, you, and they pick and they pick and they pick. I think they did the same thing. In the first century, they picked and they picked. And Zacchaeus, he'd been short his whole life. You can't change your shortness. You can wear platforms, I suppose, but I don't know if, that, if they had platform sandals in the Middle East in the first century, but you know that. But you can't change your shortness and you can't hide your shortness. There's a lot of things you can hide, but your stature's not one of them. And all of his life he'd been defined by this stature and I've often thought about the internal narrative because he's not getting any taller no matter how much he wills he can't get taller and if he can't get taller he'll actually never be like everybody else and because he's not like everybody else that's a bad thing he thinks and I'll never be tall like everybody else and so I'm never going to be good enough I'm, I'm just never going to be good enough. And I'm sure the story, the narrative went something like this. And then one fortuitous day, he gets this tax collector gig handed to him. And in one day, the Rome hands him power. Rome hands him position. And Rome hands him an opportunity to, to, to pay back. Because Zacchaeus, he, he had a memory. He had a memory. 
He remembered the guy that lives two doors over, teased him relentlessly in junior high. And so, and so Zacchaeus taxes this guy until he's just about broke. And the guy doesn't have any more money. And, and, and Zacchaeus, because he's standing as a representative of Rome, and you don't pay the taxes, you go to jail. The guy doesn't have any more money, so Zacchaeus taxes his rider more right out from underneath him. And then, just to rub it in his face, he's cutting his own grass on the guy's rider more. And he weighs, hey, how are you doing? It's good. This is really good. And the people hated him. And the people were afraid of him because the little man had become the big dog on the block. And the Bible tells us that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. The problem was he was short, again, with the short. And, 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 and so he runs ahead and he scampers up a tree and he is sitting in the tree and he's waiting for Jesus. I'm pretty sure nobody else even paid him any attention because he's so little. You know, but, and, and, and he's up in the tree. And the Bible says Jesus walks right up to the tree. He looks up and he said, Zacchaeus, I need to go to your house today. And when I read that, I thought to myself, this, how did Jesus know his name? And then I thought to myself, is it in time? You know, Jesus said, I only do what I see my father do. And God would give him instructions, say, do this. And Jesus would do it. And heaven would touch earth and supernatural stuff would happen. How did Jesus know Zacchaeus' name? Is it entirely possible that this entire detour through Jericho was about Zacchaeus? And he says, Zacchaeus, come on down. Well, Zacchaeus is absolutely thrilled, delighted in. The holy man wants to come to my house. The Bible says that Zacchaeus welcomes Jesus gladly. And, 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 and the two of them start walking and chatting as they're going to Zacchaeus' house arm in arm. Zacchaeus has a new buddy, Jesus, you know. They're walking home. I love that. They get to his house. And all the while they're walking, everybody that saw Jesus, every other Jew in the city is ticked right off. Especially the guy who lost his right or more. Because Jesus has gone to eat with a notorious sinner. He's gone to be the guest. Doesn't he even know who that scumbag is? That's how Jesus contrasted um, social structure again and again. But then something happens here, right here. Don't miss this. Something amazing happens between verse 7 and verse 8. Something unexplainable. Something so beautiful that if you stop and you look at it, it takes your breath away. In verse 8, the Bible says, and so everybody outside is grumbling and they're upset that Jesus is hanging out with bad people. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood up and he said, look, Lord, here and now I give half of what I owe to those who are poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I'll pay it back. I will pay back four times the amount that I took. 
And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house. You are a member of Abram's family line. For the son of man came to look for the lost and to save the lost. The son of man came to look for the lost and to save the lost. That's exactly why Jesus came to Jericho, to look for the lost. You see, how long was uh, Jesus at Zacchaeus' house? A couple of hours, maybe the afternoon. And what were they doing there? They weren't having church. They were eating. They were reclining around the table. And they're drinking and they're eating. And, and, and Jesus has his disciples and they're hanging out, talking, kind of hearing about the tax collector business with Zacchaeus and all of his cohorts. And there's food and there's conversation. And then Zacchaeus stops and he clinks his glass. And he says, I have an announcement to make. And the announcement that he makes is so absolutely incredible. It, 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 it's, it, it renders everybody in the room completely speechless. They never saw this coming. They have no idea what just happened here. And he begins his announcement by looking at Jesus, who's probably sitting right beside him. And he said, Lord, he called Jesus God. He just called Jesus God. I know who you are. I know who you are. He calls him Lord. For just two hours, he sat beside God. For just two hours, Zacchaeus sat beside unconditional love. He sat beside absolute acceptance. He sat beside total, ultimate forgiveness. He sat beside pure grace. All of this is being emitted off of Jesus and it's landing and it is transformed and, and Zacchaeus' faith is about to explode in his heart and he has to respond to it somehow and he stands up and he says, I'm going to give half of everything I have to the poor. I'm going to pay back four times what I've taken. One afternoon, in the presence of love, and a lifelong taker becomes a lavish giver. One afternoon, in the presence of love, and he committed to return 400%. He had to, because this was the day he'd been waiting for his whole life to be absolutely accepted, to be absolutely loved, to be absolutely forgiven, and to belong. And God himself came to my house, and he loved me. So what do I need all this stuff for? When you encounter that kind of love, you know what? You respond to it with that kind of love. It's selfless. It's, it, 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 it's lavish. It's all that you have kind of love. So when the rest of the world is repelled by Zacchaeus' worst moment, Jesus is drawn to it. 
Um, before I moved to Kelowna 10 years ago, I worked in a high school. I was a high school counselor. And um, I had a, a home room that I looked after, uh, which we really only met once a week in our home room. But my home room was a bunch of sweat hogs, okay? Now, these are all the kids that could not fly straight. These are all the kids that got in trouble more than they got out of trouble. These are the kids that, that would beak off at teachers and give them grief. And uh, a new student, a young guy, was, came to our school in grade 11, which is an odd time to come to the school, but he, he, he had a, a violent history of drugs, and, and he had a bad attitude, and he was so disrespectful. And so they put him in my homeroom because that described all of my kids in my homeroom, all right? And um, we actually got along quite well, the motley crew that we were, about 16 of us. And I was tracking along, trying to keep Alan out of prison because he's just selling drugs and doing drugs. And, and then one day I get a phone call. He said, Weesey, I'm in the hospital. Weesey, I, uh, I got cancer, man. And they, they need to operate sooner than later. And he said, I am freaking out. I'm terrified. And I talked to him and I found out where he was and how to get there. And, and then he said something that caught me so off guard. I, I just never saw it coming. And I, 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 it was just so weird. He said, Weesey, he said, uh, tell the guys to pray for me. My homeroom doesn't pray. These people don't pray. They pray on others, you know what, but they don't pray. This is a motley crew, you know what? They, and I said, all right, I'll tell them. And so that day I rounded up all as many as I could from my homeroom. And I said, we need to meet at lunch. And, and we're there and we're meeting at lunch and I said, you guys, you're not going to believe, I, I, I got a call. Alan is in the hospital. And then everybody stopped. Everybody thought he overdosed or something. I said, no, Alan's got cancer and it's bad. It's really bad. And you could, and in fact, some of these real tough kids, they start crying. And I said, Alan told me to tell you guys to pray for him. And then one of the guys takes the lead. Hell yeah. You know, he gets up and we get into a huddle. And I'm thinking, this is not going to go well. And God heard that day the most heartfelt prayers in the most colorful language you could ever imagine. It was, it was beautiful, actually. I was blushing. I'm, I'm, I'm just dodging lightning. You know, I'm just, I'm thinking if I can get out of here as I hear it coming, I'm going to just step back. And uh, went up to see Alan. He was in the hospital for quite a while. And then one day he, he came back to school and was slowly kind of getting back in the groove. And 
And Alan, who was angry and disrespectful and had real bad attitude, was now somewhat gentler. And I just thought it was maybe the trauma of all they'd been through. And so I pulled him aside and said, Alan, you're different, man. What, what is, what's going on? He goes, I am different, aren't I? I said, yeah. He goes, one afternoon when I was in the hospital, one afternoon, he said, I felt molten love in my room. I said, and what did you do to it? He said, I opened myself to it. He said, it, it, it surrounded me. It was in me. It was on me. He said, it was, it was the most amazing thing I'd ever experienced in my life. I said, what do you think it was, Alan? He says, I'm pretty sure it was God. Transformed by one afternoon in the presence of God. He went back to his Catholic church and met with his priest. I got to meet with his priest. And Alan began this incredible journey with Jesus. Last week, I had a lady in my office. And she was raised in a home full of hurt and alcoholism and abuse and violence. Her parents would take her to church and she would hear that God loves you and she knew it was true for others but she knew it wasn't true for her because if God loved me, why is it we are going to go home and my father's going to start drinking and before the day is over, he's going to be abusing my mother and my mother will come in and let us out the window and send us to the neighbor so we don't get abused. If God loved me, why does that have to happen again today like it does almost every day? And she said, I grew up unbelievably angry. And she said, I sabotaged as many relationships as you could possibly sabotage. My marriage, my family. And I said, well, what happened? Because she's completely delightful. I said, what, what, what happened? She said, some friends, years ago, friends took me to Willow Park Church. And I'm sitting in the church. And the pastor tells everybody in the church that God loves you. And she said, I didn't hear those words. I felt them. She said, it was like molten love. She said, it poured into me. She said, I started weeping because I knew it was true because I could feel exactly what that was like. And she said, and even while she's telling me, she's weeping. She's weeping. She said, I can still feel it today. She said, I can't explain it, but it changed my life. The scripture says, this is real love, not that you have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. You see, Jesus doesn't need you to accept him, to love you, because his love is not conditioned on your acceptance. He loves you, period. I'm going to invite uh, the band to come on up. And I want you, as I land this talk, um, we've got about a minute and a half left. Um, I want you to watch the video behind me. It's, it's really quite a beautiful metaphor. That's a because gold bar. Is it dirty? You can talk turn to me, the volume it dirty? off there, Nathan. You see, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've become. 
It doesn't matter how much dirt and crap there is in your life. Your intrinsic value stands. Your value has never, ever been in question. And God's love for you has never been in question. And your worth has never been in question. His love for you has never changed. You see, he sees through all the dirt. He knows what he made in you. Whether you are a believer or not a believer, it doesn't matter. You're created in his image and he utterly delights in you because he knows what you're made of. See, Jesus is not your accuser. He's not your prosecutor and he's not your judge. He's your friend. And he came to find you and he came to heal you. And he came to fill you with his love. You know why you're so busy? It's because if I was the devil, I would make sure you found yourself doing a million things and avoiding and missing out on what happened with the Zacchaeus and happened with my, this young student, Alan, and happened with this young lady that I met with today. I would make sure that you're so busy you never have time for his presence. You have never have time to, to bask in his presence. Instead, you just, you just kill yourself trying to be better. You kill yourself trying not to sin. You kill yourself trying not to, to, to do what's bad. Instead of getting into his presence and allowing his presence to begin to shift and to change. When he walks into the room, everything changes. One verse and I'm done. Isaiah said, come now, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though you, they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Let's pray together. Our Father, some of us came in here feeling pretty dirty, feeling pretty terrible, feeling pretty feeling like we are on the outside looking in and today I thank you Jesus that your word to us is you are on the inside I came to your house today to tell you that I choose you after Zacchaeus stood up and made an announcement Jesus stood up and said I have an announcement of my own he said today Zacchaeus Salvation has come to your house. He said, today, Zacchaeus, you are a member of the line of Abraham. I know they won't let you into the temple. I know they won't let you worship there. But today, I want you to know you are, salvation has come to your house. I've declared you righteous. I've declared you accepted. I've declared you loved. And I pray that you could hear that for yourself today. In Jesus' name.